So many of you international medical students and graduates have reached out to me to ask about the IMG Roadmap online course. So to meet your demand, I've created a self-paced format of the same seven-module course that is ongoing right now, which is live. And in this course, I teach IMGs how to create their own medical success story. So you learn how to find IMG-friendly programs, how to network, how to find U.S. clinical experience, how to get a strong letter of recommendation, what program directors want to see in your personal statements, how to study and use the resources available for USMLE preparation. I even go into how to fill out the dreaded ERAS application so that you maximize all your experiences and show that forward. Sign up right now at imgroadmap.com slash p slash self-paced. Again, that's imgroadmap.com slash p slash self-paced. You can complete this on your own at the comfort or within the comfort of your own home. And you have my email for consistent support. Guys, I'll see you on the other side. So go ahead and join us. The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the IMG Roadmap series. And you know, now we've gone all out. We're a podcast. I can't believe it. But today on the show, I have a very, very special physician. We met on Instagram. I mean, Instagram has just blown up. It's just changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I've met so many phenomenal people on there. But today we'll be speaking with Dr. Winchill Chan. She is a pediatric PGY-3. She's also an international medical graduate. And she has something really special about her, which first drew me to her is her journey with dealing with the serious condition through training. So I don't want to talk for her. I want her to tell us the things that make her spark and what makes her an IMG. And maybe just tell us about yourself, Dr. Chan. Hello, hello. So happy to be on here and join the IMG fam and talk about all my journey. So as mentioned, I am a PGY3 currently. I'm finishing up my last year of pediatric training in Flint, Michigan. I actually am a Canadian. However, I was born in Canada, raised in Canada, and then I went to the Caribbean for med school. Those familiar with the med school process in the Caribbean is that there's almost a school on every island. But I went to a tiny little island called Seba, Seba University. It's the shortest runway in the Caribbean or in the world, actually. And it's known for scuba diving. And primarily, the school is what really runs the school. I went there in 2012 now, which seems really recent. But Facebook told me the other day that it was almost seven to eight years ago. which was scary (laughs) to realize. But that's what brought me to become an IMG. Uh, Decided to pursue medicine outside of my home country, which by definition makes me an international medical graduate, especially in the eyes of the US system. Wow, that's such an impressive story. I've always heard about the Seba runway and I've never (laughs) traveled to Seba, but I was, was, I know I'll be terrified like flying into the island on a very short runway. 
Yeah, you definitely have to YouTube it. And anybody who's listening definitely has to YouTube it. You basically attack the, the island wall. You have to be a very trained pilot to take this flight and to do it. But it's the shortest runway. You basically fall off the cliff prior to taking off. It's a deep breath every single time. But it made the trip shorter than the, I think it was like a three-hour boat ride, which a lot of people ended up very sick afterwards. So I saved myself from that experience. Right. right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. So I know one thing that's unique about being a Canadian is, I guess I would say unique in light of other IMGs and is something that maybe ties us together as being a Canadian, you are considered an international medical graduate and you're actually considered a non-US international medical graduate, which can sometimes call for a visa, which I yeah, had yeah. the same issue as a Cameroonian citizen. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So that definitely plays a huge part in the IMG process. Basically, I was on a B1 and a B2 visa while I was in medical school. So going to the island, I think it was a B1. And then when I'm in rotations around the United States in the third and fourth year, you transition to a B2. So basically, this is a student visa. You can't make money off it and you have to renew it every three or four months, if I remember correctly. And then when you go into residency, you have to find a program that is also willing to J1 sponsor you. So that actually changes some of your perspective match places. You have to filter that along as, as you go. And you have to make sure that the places are A, IMG friendly and B, places that actually do sponsor visas because it takes extra money and time and effort from the program to be able to do that paperwork for you. And they do that yearly for every resident. It has to be renewed every year. So that plays a huge factor in where you're kind of looking and what places are open to you as an IMG. Right. So this, uh, that was actually one of the questions because guys, what you may not know is today on Instagram, uh, Dr. Chan actually put up a post in her stories asking for questions regarding the whole IMG process. And so some people actually sent her questions and we're answering them throughout this podcast. So that was mm-hmm. actually a question from can.premed. And she wanted to know as a Canadian and Canadian medical student, whether that was going to be a limiting factor for her when it came to residency. And so, you know, I think that's what you just spoke to. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily a huge limiting factor because there is thankfully more spots opening up for IMGs as the years go by. Uh, Lots more programs are willing to do that, but it is something that you have to be aware of. I definitely looked at rosters because a lot of programs, they may say it on their, you know, their page saying that they do accept it. But when you look at their roster in the last few years, the things that I found most important was actually looking through the names and looking from what schools they're from. And if you're seeing that for the last three years, basically a whole round of residents hasn't had any international graduates, it's very, very daunting and slim that they would necessarily take you on. And that's nothing against you necessarily. That's just the way that their system has been run, but definitely something that I considered. Uh, I still put my name out there and thought that it was worth it because they were so open to the idea, but to not necessarily put your all your eggs in that basket because you have to be open to the idea that they, they're not going to interview you because they just ne- haven't done it in the past. Right, right. And that was something I did as well as a non-US IMG was to go by every program's website that I was interested in. I looked at the current 
residents and I looked at where they were from, what medical school they graduated from. And it gave me a certain level of comfort to know mm-hmm. that they had sponsored a J-1 candidate before, which is the student exchange visa or an H-1B, which is the work visa in the past. They were more likely to have the experience to sponsor mine. So that, that's gotcha. a really good way to filter through, especially for non-U.S. IMGs. For those that are U.S. IMGs, this does not apply. But for those that require visas, that's another extra step that you have to take. Because otherwise, you're going to spend a lot of money mm-hmm. um, spending with programs that may not ever sponsor visa applicants. And maybe that's because they just don't have whatever state or government requirements are necessary to sponsor visas. So nothing against us personally, but there's just limited spots for visas. Definitely. Um, Yeah. So thanks for speaking to that. Now, we know that you're still in residency, so you probably have a very first perspective as to what it takes to match into pediatrics residency, especially for IMGs. So can you run through some of those key points, starting from board scores, LORs, rotation, performance, What are the key things that anyone listening that's interested in PEDS needs to know and do? For sure. So looking back at what brought me to pediatric residency was a passion. I always knew that I wanted pediatrics, but making sure that you're going through your rotations with an open mind, first and foremost, being open to all the different kind of specialties there are. And then when it comes down to it, finding the one that you feel that you could do day in and day out and kind of be happy with and feel fulfilled with. That's my first step. Secondly, in terms of boards, as an IMG, regardless, our boards are one of the major things that filter us from everybody else. It's obviously the one thing that's standardized across the board. So it does help to have a first-time passing rate as well as a decent score. What a decent score is nowadays, it's probably different from what it was for me even five, six years ago now, but definitely above what the going average is what I would say. Going into my pediatric boards, my first step one, I took in, I forget what year now, but it was a 229 and not a super, super high score, but higher than some of the average scores. And then in terms of my step two, it was a little lower, which was very daunting to me, actually. It was a 225. And I felt very worried at that time because I was told as an IMG, you definitely want to be making the same score as your step one or higher. So that did worry me. But I think the thing that really set me apart was my rotations and my my letters of recommendation. My rotations, I definitely tried to focus on having some extra peds in there, which are kind of hard to come by. So definitely, I made sure that as I was progressing through my third year, I was looking out for opportunities and keeping in touch with my program in terms of letting me know which spots were open and what kind of PEDS electives they had, which again, you have to be very vocal about, especially a Caribbean med student kind of uh, faculty. Some schools aren't as um, able to set you up with electives and you have to be very opportune on yourself and bring those opportunities to yourself. So I did a PEDS ED elective as well as a PEDS sub internship. I utilized a fellow Caribbean friend that I met along the way who was interested in PEDS, but happened to be 
B-A-U-S-I-M-G. So she had some extra connections in the Florida area. um, And I utilized her to tell me which kind of places were willing to have some sub um, internships for an IMG. So making those connections along the way are super important as well. And then because of those rotations, as well as my core rotation, I believe that I had really strong letters of recommendations that basically said that I was in love with pediatrics and that I really put myself forward into all kinds of aspects of pediatrics, outpatient as well as inpatient. My core rotation was in an outpatient. My sub-internship was on the floors in an inpatient setting, and then added the um, ED elective. So having those different perspectives from all aspects of pediatrics, I think really set me apart in terms of my application, even though my score, although higher, wasn't the highest. So I think that's what definitely put my application and my impression on everybody. Right, right. Thank you so much for sharing that much detail with us. Actually, that was one of the questions that someone had sent in or something similar. Aqua Mm -hmm. underscore Paris said, what if we don't have the best board scores or have multiple attempts? How can we stand out? Mm -hmm. So yeah, exactly. I mean, board scores, like I said, they, they're still a way of filtering us out. And unfortunately, sometimes programs already put that as their filter, just the way that they put no visas. Um, that's just something that's built into some of their filter uh, mechanisms. So depending on what they put their filter score in, um, and it's very hard to tell what some programs do put it as. But from when I was applying, my understanding was that it was most places were a 220. So I at least aimed to be above that for my scores so that I could get through the general filtering system. But I'm not quite sure in terms of multiple attempts and how that filters out, unfortunately. I'm not sure if you have more experience with that, Dr. Lum. Yeah, I just have a, you know, usually with, when you have multiple attempts, most programs don't like that by default. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean that you know you will never match because I know physicians in practice right now that had multiple attempts on their board and they're thriving just fine, you know, in clinical practice and have not had issues regarding that, particularly because they either did extremely better the second time around as far as their scores on the repeat tests, and then subsequently, whether that's with step two they continue to excel. And then mm-hmm. in addition to that, you know, just like you said, networking, connecting with other physicians in hospitals, particularly academic centers where you can get some strong advocates and letter writers that can speak on your behalf as far as your work ethic and your passion. I think yeah. those are the things that you one can do to improve the application. Some people necessarily consider research as well, but not research is not a general requirement for every specialty. Of course, it always looks good, But beyond that, your clinical experiences can make a big difference too. So another question, this is from more so from the questions from your Instagram stories. Mm -hmm. And it relates to, to the gap year. So there's two separate questions, but basically one person is asking how long is too long to take your step one? And then the other person asked about having a gap between their second and their third year due to financial reasons. Do you think that that's a red flag? So um, I had a little bit of both in terms of an answer. So first and foremost, I was a little bit delayed in terms of my road to MD. So when I finished off the island, um, with most Caribbean schools, I think have some kind of like exit exam 
or preclinical exam that makes you qualified to move on. For SEBA, it was the exit exam um, is what they called it. And basically, it was a comp exam that needed to be done prior to taking your step one before they approved you to qualify to apply for it. And then obviously after step one is when you start clinicals. So for me, I actually failed my first two exit exams. And so that basically delayed me uh, a whole year before getting to start clinicals compared to my class. At that time, obviously I thought the worst case scenario, which was I'm never going to get off this island. I'm never going to become a doctor and I don't deserve to become one. And like, what does this mean for my application? You know, the list goes on on terms of what kind of thoughts were going through my head at that time. But retrospectively, that also prepared me for a better step score to be mentally prepared to take the step and to move forward with clinicals. So in terms of having a gap, although my gap was not you know, maybe due to finances or due to other circumstances, there was a gap that I had to notify on my ERAS application because it took me five years versus the quoted four years for med school. And so there was that question on why is it a little bit longer than everybody else's. So I did address that and I addressed it headfirst. And I made sure that I stated not only on my application, but in my uh, what's that? <laughs> what's that word I'm looking for? Application where I stated what my intents were and everything that this happened to me and what made it better for me and why it actually made me a stronger applicant and a stronger doctor. And so my best advice for any kind of gap or any kind of hardship along your way is to really reflect and kind of see what actually became of that. Are you smarter in your test taking because of that? Are you able to face hardships better because of that? And if you truly can say that all those things kind of came from whatever that gap year or a failed test or whatever it may be, utilize that and utilize that as a strength and an asset um, to what the residency can utilize that from for you. So that would be my best advice. I'm not quite sure how other places see it, but I definitely used it, I think, to my advantage um, by stating it and using it up front. Right. And I appreciate I appreciate you saying that because I honestly believe that when you have gaps, it's best to address them, whether it's in that ERAS application, the personal statement, discussing it openly already eliminates the room for bias because you don't want these programs finding out about this later on in the game. It just does not look right. But once you can take a good lesson from it and show how it's made you a better doctor or how it will make you a better doctor, that's really what programs are looking for. Because at the end of the day, you can take something that was a weakness, like just like you did, you changed it into a strength. And then you created your own story out of it as opposed to allowing programs to determine your worth based on that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. Thanks for saying that. Now, another thing I was going to say, and this is, this well, this is actually based on a question from another person, mm-hmm. F-E-R-G-R 96. And this person's asking about letters of recommendations. They only have one letter of recommendation from a U.S. physician, and they're wondering whether that would affect them when they apply. So can you touch on the topic of LORs for PEDS applicants? Yeah. So for me, my letter of 
recommendations. I, I definitely did try to focus on a couple pediatric ones, but I also made sure that the people I was asking, regardless of their specialty, were people that I had a true connection with. The last thing you want is to have a letter that's really generic, that kind of doesn't have anything specific about you and, you know, could be written by anybody. So regardless of what specialty, I had one even from my first rotation, I think, in psych. I just got really, like, I was really, I worked really well with that doctor at that time. And I remember just really bonding with her really well. And because it was my first rotation, not only was I super eager, but like everything just kind of worked together in that rotation. And I asked her right off the bat to potentially write for me two years down the road. And I kept that contact throughout those two years, even though I had no ERAS number, but she kept me in mind. And I still asked her for one down the, down the line because retrospectively looking at all the other doctors, she was somebody that I knew would be able to speak on my behalf really well. And then along the way, yes, I did have pediatric. I had one for my outpatient rotation and I had one for my inpatient subspecialty pediatric. And then I believe I had one from my internal medicine, again, from the director of the residency program and medical program there who, again, was a great letter writer and was able to speak on my behalf and speak about my strengths really wholeheartedly. So it was a mixture. It wasn't all peds in terms of it being all from a U.S. That's just also because I went through the U.S. curriculum here. I think if you have, again, just strong LORs that really represent who you are and your asset to the program, it's hard to say if one or two from a U.S., program or anything would be better or worse as long as it's really talking about who and how great you are and how you would benefit a program, I think it would not hurt. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, very loaded information there. I'm sure everybody listening is just taking copious <laughs> notes, you know, they're just carried away with all this wisdom. So let's shift gears a little bit. One thing that drew me to your Instagram actually was on your profile, you have the slogan that says aiming to balance a life in medicine. And, mm -hmm. you know, if I go through your photos, it's like you're always lifting, always working out. And then on top of that, I noticed that you mentioned that you're a lupus warrior. So can mm -hmm. you walk us through that a little bit and maybe how your journey in medicine has affected any of those parts of your life? Yeah, for sure. So lupus actually is what brought me to medicine. I was diagnosed at an early age as, as a pediatric patient, actually. So I was diagnosed at the age of 13 and I went through the pediatric system in Canada, diagnosed again as a teenager. And so that was my first insight to how important a doctor is to somebody and B, how important a pediatric doctor is to somebody. It really changed how I saw life and how I saw life with a chronic illness. I never saw it as a hindrance. And I always wanted to be that person for somebody else. So that's what really drew me to pediatrics right off the bat on top of myself. Just I connect really well with children, uh, sometimes more than adults. But that is what kind of pieced all that together. So throughout high school and going through that, I was on prednisone and I was weaned off that throughout the years. But I continued to pursue medicine and I was always into sports and I was on basketball teams, um, volleyball teams. And I always found that fitness and exercise was super important in my life. 
even though lupus is known to tire you out tremendously, it invigorated me to exercise in any way, in any shape or form. I took on yoga, I took on spin classes, um, and it also helped me feel better in terms of the weight gain that I had with prednisone along the way. So that's always just been ingrained in me. And then throughout medical school, I kind of lost a little bit of that with the endless amounts of studying and just you know focusing on that and feeling almost like you couldn't balance life with medicine. There's almost this I don't know how to describe it, um, kind of pressure on people to just focus on medicine and just focus on studying because if you do anything else, you're not working hard enough. And if you were to fail, then people are judging you because you decided to balance it with you know, hanging out with friends or family or working out. And so along the way, I realized that this was kind of a ridiculous way to live. And then around my third and fourth years of clinicals, after being pretty unhealthy and eating out because I was moving around all over the US and everything like that. I decided to start a fitness program and I really took it religiously. I, it was like a six day program. People on Instagram may be very familiar with it. Um, it was the BBG program and I did it and I did it like back to back to back. I did six rounds of it and I felt so invigorated because I had an outlet for medical school and residents and like applications and the hope for residency. And fortunately, my lupus up until earlier this year actually has had been in remission for that many years since I was wow. diagnosed. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I felt very, very lucky, but I think it was also because I had try to take care of myself along the way. And sometimes the stress of the workload does take a toll. And so that is what kind of happened earlier this year. And not to say, you know, it's all all good and you can do everything all the time. Your body does take, you know, a toll on the amount of hours residency does and the amount of studying and amount of everything else on top of it. But with lupus, I feel like I've tried, especially this year, after my little bit of a setback in terms of my health, to try and listen to myself more. And that's the only thing I could really advise anybody with a chronic illness, be it lupus or any other autoimmune disease or anything else, along with pursuing medicine, is to just know that your body talks to you in very different ways. Mine was trying to tell me for quite some time that I was tiring out, that I refused to listen. So it wasn't until it finally broke down that I finally listened to it. So that's my only key, key advice because everyone's chronic illness is a little bit different, but that's my key point for that. You are such a brave heart. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, you're very right. I think I like that sentence. You know, everybody, your body talks to you in different ways. So listen to your body. I really like that. So before we end this episode, I want to talk about this article that you wrote for Happy Doctors. It looks like in 2017, you wrote an article for them and it was titled Fighting the Stigma as an International Medical Graduate. Can you help any listeners today, give them some words of wisdom, words of advice to beat that stigma? Because I think that's another problem. Like we were talking about right before I got on the call, I used to be very ashamed to say I was an IMG. I tried to hide it for the longest time. Even when I went into residency, I did not talk about it unless someone asked me. And of course, I knew the faculty was aware but I just never wanted to look like I was any less than my co-residents. So I want you to talk about that stigma because it holds a lot of us back in different ways. And sometimes 
Maybe it's when we're in residency. Other times it's before we get into residency. Can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I believe that the stigma that comes with the IMG can show up in various stages of the the road. For me, it really showed up again around that time that um, my exit exam kind of kept failing me and I kept failing it. Um, So I had to really look introspectively. Um, I actually did therapy and I really recommend that to anybody that's having some difficulties along the way because it's nothing to be ashamed of, needing some extra help, needing extra voice to talk to and having somebody from an outside perspective kind of ask some deeper questions that maybe you're having a harder time facing. For me, a part of that was facing the stigma that I had to be going to a Caribbean medical school and then also failing a couple of exams along the way. For me, it made me question if I was worthy, just the way that many people feel going to a different school and a different road to getting that MD. And I feel along the way, the biggest question that my therapist asked me was, who am I besides medicine? And who am I as a doctor and as a being? And how is that going to benefit somebody else along the way? And having that question, and I sometimes I even ask myself that now, who am I besides Winslow Chan pediatrics? Because we can get immersed into this whole system. And so after I was able to step back, I was able to let go of the stigma because my whole identity was that I was a Caribbean graduate and that uh, that's where I was coming from. But instead, I was looking at it after reflection that, no, I, I wanted something so badly that I went for it. And I think that's what IMG doctors have to give to this world and have to give to the medical field is that the passion is so deep that they're willing to go elsewhere and to you know, jump through all the hoops and jump through all the visas and jump through all of the expenses and the travel and the sacrifice that comes along with it on top of all the other, you know, basic medical school sacrifices that there are as well. And that is something that we should never be ashamed of. And that is something that we should share with the world because that passion is what makes us better doctors and better physicians and a whole, whole package. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Chan. This was probably one of my favorite episodes that I've recorded thus far. I am really happy that you took the time out to debunk some of these ideas that we've carried on for many years. And I hope that every IMG listening really can take something home tonight with them as far as a word in season, something that they can apply into their lives and make their outcome better. So before we get off, can you tell us how we can find you on the internet because there's going to be some people that want to contact you. They want to follow you. They want to know what you're about. Can For you tell sure. us where to find you? Yeah. Um, so primarily I am on Instagram. I have most of my captions are loaded there. And that is wjoy.fit.md. And sometimes I post elsewhere, but mostly it stems from there. And then I'll go from, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It was nice to have you on the show. Oh, you have it was my pleasure. Thank you so much.